talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zabel. When it comes to preventing hospital-acquired pressure injuries, turning and repositioning a patient is one of the most important topics to discuss. On today's episode, we are focusing on the nuts and bolts of how to turn and reposition a patient. Joining us to address this critical subject is Dr. Jenny Alderden, Associate Professor in the School of Nursing at Boise State University. Jenny joins me to discuss some of the best practices for when it comes to turning and repositioning a patient and some helpful tips to keep everyone happy and healthy while on the job. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Jenny, you joined us for an episode in our previous season, but to start off with, can you please remind our listeners a little bit about your background in medicine and nursing and about your experience with hospital-acquired pressure injuries? Absolutely. I've been a critical care nurse and a bedside critical care nurse for 20 years. And over the course of that career in all different settings, including in the deployed setting in the military, I was a flight nurse. I worked in a surgical ICU, medical ICU. I have seen that hospital-acquired pressure injuries are one of the most profound impacts in terms of patient suffering, patients being able to go home from the hospital. And they're also a place where nurses have the ability to really change things. Hospital-acquired pressure injuries are one of the nursing domain problems where nurses, if they have the best information and if they have the time to do their jobs right, are able to really move the needle. I think that's uh, a great background for what we're going to talk about today. And as a physician, I think I'm on the same team as you, but I agree that nurses play a very critical role in this uh, outcome of our patients and how to prevent pressure injuries. Now today, we're going to give the audience a bit of insight into the importance of turning and repositioning a patient. First of all, why is turning and repositioning so critically important to the health and healing process of a patient? So the reason that we turn a patient in terms of pressure injury risk is because without pressure on the skin, you can't have a pressure injury. It's absolutely essential that we offload those tissues so that we can get that oxygen-rich blood back to the tissue. As a critical care intensivist, there's lots of reasons why we reposition patients. It's good for them globally. It's good for functional status. It's good for recovery. It's good for lungs. But in terms of skin, it's absolutely essential that we offload pressure so that areas of the skin that were being compressed by a bony prominence or a medical device, or even just the weight of the patient's body against the bed, so that those areas can reperfuse. Generally speaking, are we currently teaching nurses how to properly and safely turn patients? I'm so glad you asked that question because the answer is no, we absolutely do not. We have been telling nurses since Florence Nightingale that it's we need to turn patients. Repositioning is important, but there's very little in terms of real information about how do you do that. For example, often when you'll see a textbook in an older nursing textbook that shows you repositioning a patient, it will show a nurse helping a patient into a 90-degree side-lying position. But we know that 90-degree side-lying actually increases the risk for pressure injuries. It's a terrible position to go in in terms of skin health because it's right on the trochanter. We want patients to be around 20 or 30 degrees. 
And teaching nurses how to get there is something that we need to do a much better job of. That's great. I think from my perspective, the educational process for wound care is really is lacking. And I remember back to my days in medical school that I really can't even remember a discussion on wound healing. And I think maybe from a nursing perspective, maybe the same thing is not taught very well in the nursing programs. And that we all understand that repositioning is important, but it's just not really stressed or emphasized enough to the point where at the end of your nursing degree that you felt that it was really that important. With that in mind, is there a standard or a set of guidelines that should be taught to help aid in this process? So what we tell nurses is a couple of different things. First, we want them to know what the goal is. If a patient's in bed, the goal with repositioning is going to be to offload bony prominences as best we can, and that's going to include the heels. Uh, We also have to make sure that those heels are offloaded. We want nurses to first gather their equipment. And this is so important, not just for nurses, but for everyone on the healthcare team who is helping with repositioning, because we have to protect ourselves too. If you are one person trying to help a fairly dependent adult patient into another position, you could hurt yourself. So one of the things we want to make sure is that nurses gather the equipment. That might be extra pillows, wedges. Ideally, it'll include some kind of lifting device, something that will help to take the pressure off the nurse's back, and that will also avoid dragging the patient. We drag someone across the bed, we cause friction and shearing forces that's hard on their skin. It's also hard on our backs. Gather your equipment, hopefully a lifting device, gather your buddies. After that, we tell nurses, bend your knees, secure that position, stand very solidly with good body mechanics. And that's not only going to help you, it's also going to help that patient, again, not be drug across a surface. And then ultimately, when you get that patient repositioned, what you're going for is a sturdy position, something where the person's not going to slide. We want to make sure that the sacrum, especially that backside of the patient is offloaded, that the heels are offloaded, which you can do separately with pillows or with boots. And that you've gotten enough of a turn if this patient is in a side-lying position that you're at 20 or 30 degrees, but that you're not all the way over at 90 degrees. So Jenny, it sounds so easy when it's coming from an expert like yourself, but it's, it is quite complicated as you've really alluded to. And I like when you said, grab your buddies. It hasn't been too long ago that when I went in to see one of my patients after surgery, that the nurse had diligently got everything ready to do a turn for the patient, but was really looking for some help. And I appreciate her ability to ask me if I would be her buddy and help turn the patient. And I think comes back to the whole team approach. There's no job too small or too big for anybody that's taking care of a patient. And I just think that's great that you, you mentioned that and that we as caregivers from all spectrums of the field need to be aware of that. So when it comes to putting these practices into action, what should we be doing in facilities to encourage patient turning that we maybe not already are doing? So I have some really practical ideas about that. One of them is that there are never enough pillows and wedges across ICUs. I cannot tell you why, but I've worked in five or six ICUs now. I oversee nursing students in many ICUs, and there's always a scramble to find the pillows and wedges. They tend to walk. They end up on other units. They go to the OR with a patient and never come back. But one of the things that we need is we need enough equipment, even in terms of pillows and wedges. We also have to make sure that hospitals and other facilities are investing in the lifting equipment that they need. Overhead trapezes in the critical care environment are probably ideal. When they're possible in acute care, those are really helpful too. 
And then one of the one of the things that's coming out in the literature now is for turning and repositioning, it can be really helpful to have slippery equipment. Sometimes if you have the kind of sheets that make it easier to pull and move a patient, if you have patients who are very difficult to reposition, have the kind of gowns that can slip and slide, that can really help to get that patient in a better position. Sometimes in some really state-of-the-art facilities, we also use turn teams. A turn team can be an incredible asset for the whole healthcare team. Turn teams can help us turn patients on time. They can prevent orthopedic injuries and nurses and nursing assistants and other healthcare workers. And they can also make sure that we, that we don't hurt anybody. We learned during COVID how very difficult it was to get people proned and then back to the supine position. You'd need a whole group of people. There is also occasionally injuries that happen when we're turning people because we accidentally extubate. We accidentally pull out a wire. We dislodge a line. Having a turn team can really help with that because the skilled, licensed healthcare providers like nurses can be watching tubes and lines with their respiratory therapy counterparts. And then we have other people that can also help us with some of the heavy lifting. That sounds like a great idea. Certainly at my institution, I'm not familiar with the concept of a turn team at all, which I think is probably very common across the country. With your experience, how many members need to be on a turn team and who ideally should lead that? Would that be a nurse or a respiratory therapist or someone else? So just speaking from experience, I worked at a hospital that did have a turn team and that turn team was generally comprised of uh, young, healthy people that were thinking about healthcare that wanted some, they wanted some experience. I think one of them went on to medical school, also worked as a scribe. The turn team does not have to be licensed. They don't have to be people that have a lot of experience because the licensed people like nurses and respiratory therapists in the room can guide them. So really the turn team can be almost any individual who's there, who's willing to learn, who's willing to help. And we can teach them how to use the equipment, how to use proper body mechanics, how to avoid dislodging tubes and lines. And it can be a great way actually for people to start to see the critical care environment and find out what it's all about. Yeah, I think that's great. I know for some medical schools and almost all the PA schools in the country, there's a requirement for an amount of observation and participation hours in order to just even make an application. And you're right, that would be a great opportunity for younger people whose backs aren't the same as mine to participate in getting into that critical care and acute care settings. You mentioned too that the, the wedges and the pillows tend to disappear. Is there a strategy so that we can make sure that they don't end up in the operating room and get thrown away with all the other material in the operating room? Or how many wedges and pillows should be on a nursing unit per patient? So per patient, we like to have about six pillows and a couple of wedges. And the reason for that is that, and I'm sure you've seen this too, but even if a patient's in the supine position, they can often be more comfortable if you float their arms, put a couple of pillows under their arms. If you float their heels up, if they're not wearing heel boots so that their heels are not touching any surface on the bed. And then if a patient is in a side-lying position, we don't want them to be uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to be laying on your side, but dangling, or the patient will start to slowly move back into that supine position. So we need enough pillows, and ideally they're the kind that you can fold over, that you can really manipulate. We need enough pillows that we can tuck them under a patient and then keep them very securely where they are. We don't want people to migrate in the bed. And in fact, some studies are starting to show that bed migration, particularly if the patient is sitting up at a 45, 30 degree angle, just migrating in the bed is hard on your skin. It causes friction and shearing forces. 
even though it can be tricky to make pillows not walk, I have seen ICUs do some, there are some good ways to try to address this. One of them is to have your unit have your own pillows that are well-labeled, your own color, your own pillowcases, and really emphasize to the staff that if you let those leave, you have lost a pillow. There can also be keeping a stack of pillows in each room and making sure that when you turn over the room, when you welcome a new patient, that there's always six pillows ready to go and that they're labeled in some way that they go to that patient. I think that in terms of the cost involved in pillows, even if we have to keep replacing pillows, it's probably worth it to have well-positioned, comfortable patients. That sounds great, Jenny. The uh, concept of the migrating in the bed, I think, is very real. In my practice, it's not. It's very common that I see a patient that comes to my outpatient wound care clinic that had just been released from the hospital, hospital and has an unstageable or a stage three coccyx pressure ulcer. And the family was trying to figure out how that happened. And it's usually because the patient had surgery, maybe a laparotomy, some sort of abdominal surgery, and their core strength was abysmal while they were recovering in the hospital. And they would get sat up in bed and kind of migrate down and sink into the the foot of the bed. And with that sheer force, develop that coccyx pressure ulcer. So the education of how we can make sure that doesn't happen is is challenging. It is. And it's actually an active, it's an active area of research right now. I know some of the bed makers are starting to address it too. One simple nursing intervention is to bump up the knees. You can put those patients, if their head's at a 30 degree, and you also put the knees at a 30 degree, And again, your pillows can be helpful there too to make sure there's no pressure points. It can put a patient in a more comfortable position and also reduce that migration downward. That sounds great. Can you walk me through in your mind what might be the ideal turn for a patient? Absolutely. So the ideal turn for a patient, and this can be tricky when you, I'll give you two different examples. I'm going to give you an ICU patient who's communicating with us and then an intubated sedated patient because they do look quite different. So if we have an ICU patient who is has some degree of mobility, needs some assistance to move, but they're able to communicate with us, the ideal turn is when they're ready. It's better for the patient if they can help us with the turn, and it's better for us. It's better for our backs. What I will try to do if I'm able to, in the context of my workload or my workflow that day, is talk to a patient and say, hey, I'd really like to get you turned to your left side or to your right side or to look at the TV, some kind of incentive, depending where the patient wants to be. And then make sure that they that it's a good time for them. Make sure that they are premedicated. Make sure that the food isn't about to come. Make sure that they don't have visitors and the chairs are on the other side of the room. But really get the patient's buy-in because if you can get the patient's buy-in, then this person will help you move them, which is good for them, good for their functional status, really good for you. And anecdotally, patients that move themselves tend to find that position that they want and stay in it a lot better than patients that we passively try to move into the position we think will be best for them. So empowering the patient is certainly important again. Empowering the patient and letting them know why it's important. If we just say, oh, hey, it's good for your skin, that's often not enough. But if we can let them know we're moving you because we don't want this bad thing to happen, we don't want you to get a pressure sore, but also because it's good for your lungs. It's going to be good for your muscles as they're recovering, getting you in different positions. And we can always move around furniture. So patients often have a favorite position because they want to see some natural light, want to look out the window, or because the TV is here, or the visitors, or there's nothing going on, and they just like watching the door of the room. So what my colleagues and I will often do, too, is just flip around hospital beds, because it's way nicer to look out the window 
But if that only happens on your left side, we can just reorient the room so that you can also look out the window on your right side. So certainly getting patient buy-in and having them be where they want to be for an awake patient can make a huge difference. And after that, it's really similar. It's the same kind of thing. It's gathering your equipment, making sure you've got those wedges, pillows, the stuff you need. In the critical care setting, the equipment often will include stuff we might need if we need to do some skincare, if there's incontinence or Foley care. We can hit some of those tasks at the same time as we're repositioning a patient. It not only works better for our workflow, but it's a lot less disruptive and uncomfortable for the patient because if we're going through this turn anyway, we can talk to them about, hey, let's get all these things done and make you more comfortable. That's great, Jenny. Back in season one, we talked about our theoretical patient, Mr. Y, and Mr. Y probably developed his pressure ulcer during the critical stage of his illness when he was hemodynamically unstable and not being able to be turned. Do you have any thoughts on should we turn hemodynamically unstable patients? And if we do or can, is there a different approach to that? Absolutely. So the first answer is a resounding yes. Over time, not turning patients isn't just bad for their skin. You'll sometimes hear people say, I'm prioritizing the life versus the skin. But the reality is that we need to reposition patients for lots of reasons. One of them is their lungs. And so any short-term gain by not repositioning a patient could be harmful to them in many ways. You would just have to do it very carefully. To reposition an unstable patient, we recommend gradual turns. And that can be, again, a workflow issue. We need to make sure that we have enough people and enough time because a gradual turn often involves me or another person really slowly moving a patient. And that can be hard to do when there's lots of things going on, when your other patient needs things. So this is another place where teamwork is essential. I'm going to try to turn my patient. He's been unstable today. Can you assist me? Or can you look out for my other patients? Can you help me in any way? Sometimes when patients don't tolerate being on one side or the other as well, it's not an indication not to move them, but it can be really helpful to have another nurse or a provider or another bedside clinician there that can help with things like if a patient doesn't do as well on their left, Maybe you need to bump up the oxygen. Our respiratory therapists are great about that and they'll never tell you not to turn a patient because they desaturate. They will deal with it because over time, it's still better to turn that patient. You might need a nurse or someone else to turn up the vasopressor dose so that the patient can tolerate being on that side. But overall, it's going to be about gradual turns, having enough staff. And then if a patient truly cannot tolerate that 20 or 30 degree turn that we consider a real turn, Five degrees is better than nothing. 10 degrees is even better than five. So even just a little bit of offloading is a lot better than nothing. I agree. And we've talked about empowering the patient in some of these previous questions that you've just answered for me. And we've talked about the acute care setting and the ICU type setting. But eventually patients get better and they start to work towards a home environment. Maybe it's an extended care facility or, or home. And what's your thoughts on how we can educate patients, family members, neighbors, anybody who's at home with them to help them understand the importance of moving and turning once they leave the hospital environment. I think one of the biggest gaps is that, and this happens in the hospital as well, but when people start to progress toward home, when they're getting better, they start to spend a lot more time in chairs and especially in a recliner. You're in a cardiac chair and then you're in a recliner And for some reason, our message about we reposition, it's very important to turn every couple of hours, 
tends to be lost when people are up in a chair because it's considered a type of mobility. You're up in a chair. So one of the messages that I try to really reinforce with my patients who are transitioning and that we work hard on in the long-term care side of things is that even if you are in a chair, even if you're upright, it's still really important to be turning. It might be a smaller tilt. And this is a great way we help our wheelchair patients to to reposition themselves, to teach them about changing their weights. We need to help all of our patients that are going to spend time in chairs, especially our people coming out of the hospital who are going to go home and most likely hang out a lot of time in a recliner to teach them the same kind of things that we teach patients who are in wheelchairs about redistributing their weight, tilting themselves and, and using their upper bodies to try to, to try to reinforce perfusion into their backside area. I think that's really helpful. No episode of The Pressure Effect would be complete unless we had some discussion about documentation. Finally, let's talk about turn documentation standards. When it comes to these standards, what's working, what's not working, what's on the horizon, Jenny? So I'll tell you, one of the most difficult things as a practicing nurse is that turn documentation doesn't always happen when the patient is turned. I think I've confessed on this podcast in the past that turning documentation is my lowest priority in patient care. It's my lowest priority because it doesn't really change anything with the patient or their story in the moment. And often taking that time to document takes my time away from the bedside. It takes time from the patients and their families. One of the things that would be helpful to nurses in turn documentation is that a lot of our patients turn themselves. Patients pretty often move. And so even patients in the ICU, most of them have some degree of mobility. And so being able to capture when a patient has moved themselves, especially if they're sleeping, is a nice way to not have to go in there and disrupt the patient and talk to them and wake them up and turn them. What's on the horizon is automating that aspect of nursing documentation. If we can have it so that turns are automatically recorded by a sensor, then patients get credit when they turn. We don't have to go in and wake them up in the night. And also, then we have one less thing to try to document at the end of the shift to try to remember. So have you used any of that documentation technology or familiar with any other technology that might be out there that we should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I have used the LEAF sensor before. And one of the nice things about the LEAF sensor is that if the patient turns themselves, the LEAF sensor in most EHR systems can feed that information to the EHR. So I can look at this patient on our screen and think, oh, Mr. Smith was on his left. Now he turned down to his right side. I can let him keep sleeping. I don't need to go in there and get him. The other thing that we haven't yet been able to do and that now sensors in the LEAF system in particular let us do is I've talked a lot about coordinating with a buddy, figuring out you really can't turn a patient by yourself. You're going to need help. One of the things that we talk about in nursing is this idea that nursing is a team sport. And yet team sports require communication. It's hard to communicate around turning and repositioning because we are communicating about so many other things during a shift. The nice thing about the LEAF sensor system is that it comes with a dashboard so we all know which patients need to be repositioned and we can gather as a group and get that done. That's great. That just about wraps up our conversation. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience about the nuts and bolts of turning and repositioning? I think the main thing that I'd like to emphasize is just that although turning and repositioning seems so basic, it's something that, that is not only crucial to patients, but also something that we can do well with just a little bit of training. And then certainly technology can give us a big assist. That's super helpful, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
That's it for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Jenny Alderden for joining us today and giving us the tools we need to better understand how to turn and reposition a patient. And thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.